0: Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Randy Mitchell. Jesus said to his disciples, ye are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt and Light confronts the difficult and often controversial issues that affect today's culture. The only hope for this generation is for more people to follow Jesus Christ and for his followers to be salt and light in their community. Pastor Randy will discuss the Bible solutions to help us know what God says about the problems we face today. Salt and Light is a ministry of Temple Baptist Church in Statesville, North Carolina. Here's your host, Pastor Randy Mitchell. Good morning and welcome to Salt and Light radio broadcast. I'm Pastor Randy Mitchell with a very special guest, guest that's been with us on a number of occasions in the past, Brother Ben Smoker, our true southerner. Uh, course we are here from the south most of you know that I'm not a true southerner I'm a westerner not a Yankee technically I'm from the state of Idaho Idaho was not a state during the Civil War so I don't really qualify as that but of course for many people anybody that's from anywhere north is a Yankee so that's the way it goes but brother Ben is a true southerner uh, from Australia. Brother Ben, how are you doing this morning?
1: I am doing quite well, thank you. Yes. And, um, yeah, my take on being Southern is unless you were born in the Southern Hemisphere, you're a Northerner.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for coming in uh, this early Tuesday morning. I know um, uh, it, I was a little bit uh, sad when I found out that the guest that I had scheduled, Pastor Jason Boger from Northmont, he uh, was under the weather, and contacted me yesterday and said that uh, he lost his voice, wasn't going to be able to be with us. But I was also very excited when I talked to you on the phone and said, "Hey, I know it's short notice, but uh, 6 a.m. Could you join me for Salt and Light?" So thank you for being so uh, willing and um, enthusiastic about it. It was, you know, I didn't it make me feel like that I just ruined your day, and so appreciate you being here on the broadcast today we've got a I think we're gonna have a lot of fun here today talking about something that's uh, very very important and valuable so uh, we certainly hope that you will stay tuned in throughout uh, the entire hour here this morning now you just got back last week from a big race Um, many of you know brother Ben uh, does a lot of racing long distance uh, mountain type racing you went out west for a race tell us a little bit about that race brother
1: uh, it, it didn't go as, as well as what I had hoped. Um, this was my uh, third attempt at, the, at this particular race. It's a 100-mile mountain trail running race in uh, the, the big mountains of Idaho. And uh, the first year I went out there, um, I'll, I'll be straight up honest, the first year, it was on me. I, I didn't finish because of the fact that I I've fully underestimated uh, just how radically big and steep and rough, the mountains were out there and uh, after 30 miles uh, I missed a mandatory time limit and and to be honest, my body was was destroyed long before I got to the 30 mile mark. It was almost relief that they pulled me off the course. Um, Second year I went out there much better trained, much better prepared, Uh, ran 47 miles that day. All day long I couldn't figure out every time I got onto flat ground, man why can't I breathe any good. And uh, it was a day later when I found out that I had been running all day the day before with COVID. Um, and so I, I felt pretty good once I found out that, like, oh, 47 miles with COVID, that's all right. That's, that's good going. Yeah, um, not
0: bad. <laughs> I,
1: I, I had a, a, a gap last year and, and came back again this year, well-trained, well-prepared. Uh, and uh, friends, let me give you some advice at 6.05 AM. Next time you're thinking of 100 miles in the mountains, don't do it the day after getting a gastro attack. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to go well. All
0: right. Uh, well, so I'm your friend, but uh, I got to admit, I, I, I haven't been thinking about a hundred mile mountain race. <laughs> m-
1: most <laughs> most people don't. Most people don't. But it was it was big. It was spectacular, and I uh, found another way that you can't get it done.
0: Yeah. So how far in did did you get this time?
1: Uh, I made it to that that same thirty mile marker. They have a they have a pretty aggressive time limit there on purpose. The mm-hmm. race director. Figures out if I'm gonna, you know, if, if there are people that don't stand a chance of making hundred miles this year, he said, let's weed them out early.
0: They want uh, racers, not hikers.
1: Uh, that's that's pretty much it. And yeah,
0: yep. Yep. well, well, folks, I know being from Idaho and the the place where he races, I I used to go um, hunting in that area, hiked up into some mountain lakes, and uh, I can tell you, if you're familiar with the mountains around here, even like Mount Mitchell, um, the mountains out there are much steeper. Yes. Elevation is much higher. Some of the lower mountains are double the height of what uh, Mount Mitchell is, and so it, it's rough. And so to to run in that altitude, that kind of steepness, rugged terrain, just to go 30 miles, brother, I just I applaud you and I commend you. I know that you're disappointed that you weren't able to finish that hundred mile, uh, but there's yep. always some there's always the future. And that's so that's a fact. I know you inspire me with your. Uh, your dedication to that and and you're just taking on a challenge and I think it's always good in life that we uh, take on a challenge mm-hmm. well we're gonna be talking here this morning about uh, something that uh, I think is a very important thing Revelation 12 verse number 11 folks listen to what the Bible says the Bible says and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death I want to focus On that phrase the word of their testimony now this is prophecy of something that's going to be taking place in a very difficult time here uh, in this world and that's the tribulation period and there's going to be a group of people that are going to overcome the Antichrist overcome the devil if you will by the blood of the lamb we know obviously that there's power in the blood of the lamb but uh, the Lord says here also by the word of their testimony And so uh, I've asked Brother Ben if he would share some of his testimony, how he came to Jesus Christ. Uh, Folks, I love telling, I love hearing about uh, people's testimonies. And there's power in it. Uh, Paul understood it. Peter understood it. John understood it. And we're going to see here in just a little while that even the Lord Jesus Christ understood that. So before the break, we've just got uh, about a minute here, a couple minutes to go before the break uh, get us started here, brother Ben, on your testimony.
1: All right, uh, my my testimony, my life story. Every and everyone's life story is unique. Um, and uh, sometimes we can look at our story and think, "Oh, mine's not very interesting." And then you tell your story to other people, and they find it it fascinating. Uh, my story begins like this: um, uh, I was born at a very early age, um, <laughs> and um, me too. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't wow. Couldn't walk. I was, uh, you know, there was not much hope for me when I was. Um, but there's a verse in Psalm, uh, Psalm 27 verse 10 uh, and I'm not sure if this actually happened to King David himself or as the as the, the psalmist, the, song, the songwriter and song singer and the poet of Israel uh, would sometimes speak poetically but in Psalm 27 verse 10 he said when my, mo- when my father and my mother forsake me then the Lord will take me up. Uh, that verse is the beginning of, of my life. Uh, literally on, on the day that I was born uh, I was born as a result of a situation uh, completely out of wedlock. Uh, the year was 1972, and there was still a, a stigma associated with you know, being born out of wedlock back in the early 1970s. Uh, my father was nowhere to be seen, and 50-something years later, uh, still nowhere to be seen. I have tried to uh, find him and, and make contact. Uh, but even my mother that I was born to, uh, as I was being born, uh, she had asked that the nurses would hold a, a, a blanket up near uh... near her face and uh... she literally didn't you know, chose not to see me uh... on on the day that i was born uh... and so for the first three three weeks of my life i was raised uh, in a hospital by a, a series of nurses uh... just jamming bottles down the throat of the fat baby because i was a, a fat baby i was nearly eleven pound baby Um Uh, But then the story changes uh, certainly significantly for the better after 23 days. And I guess we'll get back to that after the break.
0: Yeah, amen. I'm excited. uh, Looking forward to hearing the rest of the story, folks. Uh, Stay tuned for the next segment of Salt and Light. Welcome back to Salt and Light. We are here with uh, Brother Ben Smoker. And last segment, we started talking about uh, his life's testimony and particularly his testimony of faith, of how he eventually came to Jesus Christ. We've been talking about when you were born, Brother Ben. uh, You were born to parents uh, out of wedlock. And uh, uh, we just barely got into that story, Mm -hmm. talking about what happened. You were just a little baby in the hospital, uh, never did see your birth mother at that moment, never yep. did know her. And so I'm going to turn things back over to you to uh, continue telling us this story ab- about your life.
1: Yep. So there I was, a helpless, defenseless little fat baby that couldn't even walk. Um, 20, 23 days old uh, was when my life uh, made its first significant change. Uh, and that was when uh, my uh, now adoptive parents uh, came to the hospital uh, and picked me up. Uh, at twenty three days old and they took me home uh... started to raise me um, i've learned a lot of the history that um, just in the last couple of years that i didn't know all my life growing up I, I grew up knowing that i had been adopted uh... but i didn't know much of the circumstances behind it and wrote to the um, government of south australia and got a lot of paperwork from them and uh... sat down sat down with my wife uh... one evening and we sat down on the couch and we started reading through and it was amazing. It was almost like reading a story of someone else's life, but it was actually uh, my life. And that was where we discovered one of the interesting things I had. Uh, we ourselves have adopted a, a little baby girl who's now four years old. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was a phenomenally expensive process, the process of adoption. And we had ex- had experienced a failed adoption, lost a lot of money through that process as well. And uh, that had compounded things. And I asked my adoptive dad one day I said dad when back in the 1970s when I was adopted how how expensive was it and my dad didn't answer that question he deflected the question by saying oh son you're worth you're worth every everything it cost us and I'm like well that's great dad but that didn't answer my question and um you know what what did it cost to adopt me dad and he's like seriously son it's really it really doesn't matter we've loved you all your life we, and you know the money's never been a consideration of ours we've just appreciated having you as our as our son, and when all of the paperwork came back from the Australian government, I found out why he deflected for so long to answer that question. Uh, I was literally the $1 baby. Uh, (laughs) There was a $1 fee associated with my adoption, just a a nominal fee paid to the government (laughs) for it. So uh, I've joked about that with my dad ever since. I'm well. well, dad, you get what you pay for. (laughs)
0: After going through two adoption processes, you're probably jealous. (laughs) I I,
1: I wish, I wish they were, I wish they were a dollar. So 23 days into my life, uh, my mum and my dad uh, adopted me uh, into their family. And uh, my dad, growing up, um, before he and mum got married, my dad had been, uh, he was a, a Christian man. He was saved uh, through the ministry of a uh, local Methodist church in Australia. Uh, and my mother had gotten saved through the ministry of a Salvation Army church uh, in Australia. And yet, neither of them met, at either of those churches, they met at a midweek uh, Baptist Bible study. And that was where they first uh, uh, met each other. That's where they decided that they were interested in each, in each other and began dating. And so they actually used to date uh, on Wednesday nights at church Bible study. That was how they, how they, quote unquote, dated. And when they got to the point where they were getting serious and thinking about getting married, there was going to be the awkward conversation of, you know, Salvation Army versus Methodist. And they had the conversation and the way it's been explained to me was that my dad said, well, I'm never going to join the Salvation Army church because you guys don't focus enough on the doctrine of the Bible. And my mother said, "Well, I'm never going to become a Methodist because you guys just you guys don't have any life about you." And of course the Salvation Army church is very lively or at least it was back in in the in those days. And so because they couldn't agree on that, in the end they said, "Well, we met at a Baptist church and we like the Baptist Bible studies. Why don't we just become Baptists?" And so they they didn't join the church that they had had that bible study at they actually joined a church called calvary baptist church in adelaide in australia it was started in about 1967 and it was literally the first ever independent baptist church in australia prior to that baptists baptist had historically been associated with um, the baptist church uh, from great britain uh, but independent baptist missionaries from the united states from Pen- pennsylvania originally in particular Uh, Came to Australia, started a church in 1967, and that was the church that my parents uh, joined, became members of, Sunday school teachers. Uh, And so, as a 23 year old baby, by the time I was one month old, I was attending uh, a Baptist church. And as a young boy growing up there in in that church, I I can still remember, and people who know me know it's amazing that I can remember anything from my youth because I have a um, I have a strange genetic defect, which means that I, I don't remember a lot of things, but I can still remember my Sunday school teacher when I was a little boy, and her name was Mrs Strachan. And uh, my mother would ask Mrs Strachan after Sunday school, was, was Ben good in class today? And I can still, in my mind, I can hear Mrs Strachan, oh Mrs Smoker, we love Ben, but I'm sorry to say he wasn't very well behaved in Sunday school today. And I can still remember some of the whoopings I got from misbehaving in Sunday school.
0: The stuff you want to forget, you mm-hmm. remember. Oh, I can remember that. Yeah, and I, I still remember the that. lady's
1: name, Mrs. Stracken, who snitched on me. Um, <laughs> but she was just telling the truth. I, I, I was. I was the clown class, and I would misbehave in Sunday school. And so by the time I was five years old, there was one thing I knew and knew pretty well, and that was that I was a sinner. I was a little sinner, and I was pretty good at sinning. And uh, one night uh, at church, the preacher on, su- on a Sunday night was preaching about hell. Uh, and I still vividly remember it. And they had an altar ultra call. They invited people to come and receive the Lord as their Savior, and, and I didn't go forwards. I was a five-year-old boy. But we went home uh, that night, uh, and at home that night, my seven-year-old sister, she said to me, she said, I don't understand why you didn't go forward and get saved. And I'm like, well, I was scared. And she goes, yeah, but you're a sinner, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And I'm like, yeah, Mrs. Stratton <laughs> keeps telling my mom I'm a sinner. Uh, and she said, well, then you're going to hell, aren't you? And I'm like, I think so. Yeah. And she said, then why don't you get saved? And I was like, oh, I was too scared. And she goes, well, why don't you just do it here? And I'm like, oh, like at home. And she's like, yeah, yeah, let's get saved now. And so I, as a little five-year-old boy, I still remember we, we didn't have carpet in our house. Uh, we had, we had, um, straw. We had straw mats that were woven together into these little squares like, you know, 12-inch tiled, tiled carpet. You can get where well, you had, tiled straw. Mm-hmm. And I kneeled down on that straw floor in my bedroom there as a five-year-old boy, uh, and I asked the Lord as best as I knew how. And I'm, I'm in business. I was serious. I was no theologian at five years old, but like I'm like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a I'm a pretty nasty little kid, and if you know, if you have a call on Mrs. Strack, and she's going to testify against me, so <laughs> I'd better do something, and I'd, I'd better get saved, and and I did when I was when I was five years old, and and here's the first thing I would say in terms of my testimony this morning, uh, Christians out there this morning, preachers out there, I would encourage you that sometimes you will do, you'll teach your lesson, you'll deliver your message, and literally you'll go home and you'll think that nothing happened and that you had. Uh, no impact. Uh, And yet that preacher that preached that message uh, that that Sunday night, uh, who was preaching on on hell and how serious it is and how real it is and that it's the place that people go who don't receive the Lord, he may have gone home that night and thought, well, nothing good came of that. uh, And yet something good did come of that. Uh, And so I would say to everyone out there, Mm. if you're involved in Christian work, if you're involved in youth work, the first thing I would say is never underestimate the impact that your church is having on your youth. Uh, that's, that's a really important thing. It's too easy to think that, we're not, that nothing's happening and that lives aren't being changed. And yet sometimes behind the scenes, uh, the Lord is working on people in situations like that.
0: I think oftentimes uh, people get discouraged. I know I've I've had to struggle with those thoughts. Did it do any good? And in this modern day of Christianity that we live in, people are so results oriented Mm -hmm. and we're so we got to see results and we've got to see it now. And sadly, what I've seen happen is people end up cutting corners and they stop trusting God, stop trusting the Holy Spirit and the word of God to get the job done. And so they start manipulating results. And you can do that with children or adults. You can emotionally manipulate them. You can word it just so, uh, to where uh, any child will just respond the way that you want them to respond. But that mm-hmm. that does not indicate that God did any work in the heart. And so, uh, results are important. We we labor in hope that there will be some fruit. But the problem is we've got to trust God to do it his way and not cut those corners. And I know I struggle with that sometimes wondering, is it doing any good? And I always have to go back and believe the Bible rather than uh, get discouraged by what I'm actually seeing and sensing. Because what we see and sense isn't always the way it truly is.
1: Yes. Yep. It's also important to understand that our ministry um, is multiple people are involved in, in our ministry and no one of us ever gets quote unquote the, the results Paul himself I have planted and Apollos warded but God gave the increase mm-hmm. uh, and as, as I go through my life story there are, there are this one missionary preacher he was not the only missionary pastor I had in my life there were actually a six or seven different missionary preachers in my life one of them certainly more influential than than all of the others uh, and yet the reality is i you don't get to that point of the one who's more influential if it wasn't for the foundation and groundwork and framework laid by the by mm. the men earlier well said um so yeah uh and if we got we got a couple of minutes before the break uh, um i'll tell you about uh my baptism because my baptism experience is just absolutely hilarious uh um so i got saved when i was five years old by the time i was about seven years old um, I was going to get baptized, and uh, we went down to a public swimming pool where where the church was holding a, a baptismal service that day, and they had everyone lined up that was going to get baptized. Uh, and I was, I knew, I understood it was for something for people who were already Christians, and I was in line. I was going to get baptized, and everything was good, except the preacher's daughter messed me up. Um, <laughs> and, and if you want like, what do you mean the preacher's daughter messed me up? Well, she was the one directly before me. And she took about two steps down into the water, burst into tears, screaming hysterical tears like like the water was electrocuted or something. She just got stage fright about getting baptized. Uh, And then after, you know, two minutes probably of them trying to calm her down and coax her, it was okay to get baptized. She, uh -uh, She turned around and backed out. And then they looked at me like, you're next, And I'm like, uh-uh, I ain't going down in there. Uh, and then there was a five year delay. Uh, I didn't get baptized when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. It was 12 years old before I eventually got baptized. But by the time that I did, uh, you know, I'd been a, a little Christian kid now for about seven years. And by the time I got baptized, I, I was serious about it. And so if the sec- video
0: would have been available back then, that one would have won $100,000. It, <laughs> it,
1: it, it was probably prize-worthy. It was, it was very funny. So I got done by the domino effect. She went down and I went down with her, and, uh, and that was the end of that. But uh, I would say never underestimate the importance of believer's baptism. Uh, if you're a new Christian out there this morning and you've never been baptized since you got saved you need to consider doing. It. It's a very important step of obedience to the Lord.
0: Amen. You know, that's that's a very important thing. Uh, baptism after you've been saved. A lot of people misunderstand baptism. They think that it washes away sins. Uh, we uh, Many religions will baptize babies thinking that that qualifies as scriptural baptism, but folks, that's not according to the Bible. So it is a very important step of obedience, not for salvation, but for our discipleship and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay tuned. Join us for more of Brother Ben's testimony after the break. Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, we're here with Brother Ben Smoker talking about his testimony of salvation, what God has done in his life. Brother Ben, I can relate to you. You got saved when you were a five-year-old boy, got saved at home after the preacher had preached to you. The Was it the night before or was it that very night that the preacher preached and then you got saved when you got home? Yes, it was that night. Yep. And for my testimony, I actually, my, my mom took me to an evangelistic crusade in Caldwell, Idaho at Simplot Stadium. It was just, uh, you know, now it's just a, a high school stadium where they play baseball. I don't even think it's big enough for a football stadium. In my mind, I remember it as big as Yankee Stadium. You know, it just seemed so big. And I heard uh, an evangelist by the name of John Wesley White, um, and he is out of Toronto, Canada. He was part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association Hmm. itinerant evangelism. They would have little crusades all over the place. So all of the uh, Bgea crusades were not all Billy Graham's crusades, and so uh, my mom took me to one of those, and I heard the gospel. And uh, the next day, I was asking if we could go back, and my mom wasn't planning on taking me back. I had a Christian grandmother who heard me talking, and uh, she said, "Darlene, you need to take you need to take Randy back." And so we went back the next night um, wasn't part of the plan but i heard the gospel again and i asked if i could go forward my mom said you can but you have to you're gonna have to go down there by yourself she knew Mm -hmm. that she wanted to make sure that i wasn't that i was being sincere that that i understood and you know when i was five year old five-year-old boy I wouldn't have done that probably in that crowd and in that circumstance Mm -hmm. uh, if it wasn't something real going on in my heart and I remember walking down all of those steps of that stadium walking down onto that field one of the counselors met me we knelt down at a metal folding chair Uh, he opened up the Bible showed me how to be saved I prayed asked the Lord to save me and you know that's my testimony and a lot of things I didn't understand. Um, we weren't in church at that time. My, my aunt would take us to s- uh, Sunday school at the Nazarene Church, so I was learning some things. But as far as my Christian growth, I really got s- kind of stunted right there off the get-go and mm-hmm. didn't really grow in the Lord, didn't learn a whole lot about that. But you know, the Holy Spirit being inside of me and I, I look back and I believe that that, uh, that He was in there and that I truly got born again. I can promise you, folks, God will lead you through it. it. You know, it's not so much of it we think it's up to us, but I'm telling you, God, uh, He knows how to work in our lives. And I appreciate you sharing this testimony of how God has worked in your life. So I'm I'm anxious to hear more, brother.
1: All right. So yeah, um, adopted as a as a baby, uh, adopted by God when I got born again as a little five year old boy got baptized at uh, 12 years old after a false start at, at 7 years old when the preacher's daughter got scared and I got scared. Um, moving on a, a couple of years later, um, interesting your connection there, the, the preacher you mentioned from BGEA um, who was from Canada because the, the next interesting uh, sort of junction in my life, uh, I was uh, the church that I attended at that time, I was about 16 years old. I was involved in the youth ministry of the church. They had an AWANA program, a very popular program um, throughout the United States and and worldwide. And AWANA was big back in Australia in the 1980s and and whatnot. And so I was at an AWANA conference in Sydney in Australia. And they had flown a a preacher out from Canada, uh, a guy who, to the best of my knowledge, is still preaching today. He's quite an old man now uh, by the name of um, Wendell Calder. And Wendell Calder came out and uh, gave the gave the message to all of those youth workers uh, that day. And once again, this is one of those miracles of a, of a person that can't remember anything, who can remember some things so vividly. Uh, he preached a message about uh, the need for Christians to have personal sanctification and a personal commitment to the Lord. And... Um, he gave his, his message and his life testimony, and he spoke very, very fast. He said from the get-go, he said, some people say I sound like an auctioneer. Some people sound like, uh, say I sound like someone, uh, a commentator calling a horse race. He said, but he said, I talk fast, and you have to listen fast, so buckle up and hang on. <laughs> and, and that's how this guy preached, and it was phenomenal. It was uh, amazing. But he, he told his life story, and he told how there was a time in his life where he personally dedicated his life to the Lord. This is not salvation. This is about Christian service. And he said this, he said in the front of my Bible, he said, I have handwritten this statement. It was all I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be. I now and forever dedicate to the Lord Jesus Christ for his use and glory. Absolutely, unconditionally, now and forever. Amen. And he signed his signature next to it and he got one of his friends at his church to sign as a witness that he had made that commitment to the Lord on that day. And long story short, years later, this guy travels all around Canada. He travels all around the United States. He travels all around the world. And he pretty much preaches one sermon everywhere he goes. And it's that message. And at the end of that message, he invited everyone to come down to the altar and make that same commitment to the Lord. And he had hundreds of little stickers that you could peel the back off of you could put that exact little statement and stick it in the front of your Bible. It had a line for you to sign, and I had a line for a witness to sign. All I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be, I now and forever dedicate to the Lord Jesus Christ for His use and glory, absolutely, unconditionally, now and forever. Well, he gave that invitation and there were probably 400 people in the room that day. Um, and. You know, they say at a church invitation. I think in the the South, everyone is familiar with the culture. It's every head bowed and every eye closed. And and what's every second person doing? Oh yeah, the head's bowed, but the eyes are the eyes are looking around a little bit. What what are other people doing here? During,
0: <laughs> yeah, everyone's
1: having sneaking a look. But you could hear from the sound of the feet. You didn't even have to open your eyes to hear that there was an incredible reception to this altar call this day, and nearly everyone was going to the altar to get their little. Their little sticker and peel the back off of that and stick it in their Bible and sign it and have someone else sign it there that day, um, and I could hear nearly all of my friends uh, at my church. Uh, whilst there were four hundred people in the room, my church sent about fifty people to that that meeting in Sydney, in Australia. It was two hundred miles up the road from where we lived, and uh, I, I sort of started to get this feeling that there's not many of us from my church that haven't gone forward. And to be honest, there was. By the time all was said and done, I, I I looked around good and proper. There were two people in the whole building that hadn't gone forward. There's 398 people at the altar. I've never seen anything like this. And there's two people holding out uh, as myself and my, my best friend, my best friend's oldest brother. And he was the cool guy in the church. Like, And I'm thinking, I'm not going if John doesn't go. And John's probably thinking, I'm not going if Smoker doesn't go. Uh, and and yet the Lord is tugging at, at, at our heartstrings and the Holy Spirit's working on us. and. Long story short, eventually, and and the preachers up there, there's 398 people at the prayer altar. If ever there's a preacher you ought to be satisfied with the altar calls, that guy, and he's and he's up there and he's praying. Now we're gonna we're gonna carry on the invitation a little longer because I can see some people are struggling and some people are holding <laughs> out on the Lord. And I'm like, oh, I wonder who those two people might be. Hey, John, um, and and so we we went forward, and I didn't go forward just to shut the preacher up. I, I was serious, uh, and the and here was why I held out so long. I thought every word that that guy said, I said, if I do that, and if I sign that, and if I put if I put my signature to that, I realized that, I said, there's no turning back. This guy, what he said, all I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be, I dedicate to the Lord Jesus Christ for his use and glory absolutely unconditionally. There's no way of weaseling out of that. If you go forward and you say that, you, you got to hold yourself accountable to that. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about that God has no pleasure in fools that make commitments in the house of God. That's right. And you're better off to keep your feet. You're better off to stay where you are. Stay in your seat if you aren't serious about that commitment. Right. And I eventually, uh, like, my feet got to the point where your feet, you could, you don't belong here anymore. <laughs> you belong down there. And so I went down there that day, and uh, got my little sticker, put it in my Bible. And what's really sad is a couple of years later I lost the Bible. Oh man, I've regretted that mm. ever since. I wish I'd kept that Bible just for that little, for that little sticker alone. But even though I lost the sticker, I never lost the memory of what I committed to and I never lost the commitment to actually do it. And what's sad to me is of the approximately 50 people from my church that went forward that day and made that commitment to the very best in my knowledge of the, of the 50 people that we sent, only three of them even go to church. Myself, I said that the guy holding out was my best friend's oldest brother. The three, that are, the three that are still in church today are myself, my best friend's oldest brother, and my best friend. And the other 47 made a commitment, but their heart just mm. wasn't in it. Mm. Uh, and so I would say this to every Christian that's out there listening today. Never underestimate the need for a personal, private, and authentic relationship with God. Amen. Amen. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 14, verse 23, said, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Uh, the words away, apart, and alone. That was Jesus' relationship with the Father. And we need to have that. It's wonderful to go to church. It's wonderful to make commitments. But it's got to be personal. It's got to be private. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be real.
0: Amen. We were, during the break, I was talking uh, about my testimony. I genuinely got saved as a five-year-old boy, and then a year later, I'm in vacation Bible school, and uh, a bunch of my friends all respond to the invitation. They go forward, and I just kind of joined them, and I went through the motions because everybody else was. The pastor says, well, Randy, you need to be baptized, and so Uh, I just went through that motion, and I did it, but I had no idea really what I was doing and why I was doing it. And so, but I think the point that I'd like to make or add to this is that when I was nine, uh, my dad was preaching at that time, and he's explaining baptism. And I'm sitting there listening, and I really wasn't a real attentive uh, PK. I wasn't uh, a a real good preacher's kid, uh, but I'm listening, and I'm taking this in, and afterward I said, Dad, I— When I got baptized, I didn't understand it the right way. I didn't know what I was doing. What should I do? And he said, well, Randy, that's between you and God. If you feel that you need to get baptized again or or genuinely get baptized because it wasn't genuine before, then we can certainly do that. And so I got baptized again when I was nine because the Lord gave me light and understanding that I didn't have as just a, an innocent, simple-minded child just listening to what the Word of God says. So I'm thankful that no matter what our testimony is, it, like you said, it's personal and it's private. God works in our life in different ways. And mm-hmm. I know there are many listeners out there, Brother Ben, that have just responded to Jesus, quote unquote, out of peer pressure because everybody else was doing it or because yep. other people expected it of me. But they didn't have a personal encounter with God. And that's the reason that they struggle. That's the reason that church doesn't really mean that much to them. And that's why uh, they just, uh, they feel, they don't feel like it's real because in so many people, sadly, it's not real. Yep. But folks, we want to tell you before the break, and, and be sure and stay tuned to the last segment here, we want to tell you that it can be real. It's a you know, Jesus is real, the gospel is real you've just got to open up your heart and get real with God. I I tell our people at Temple Baptist all the time, you'll never get right until you get real. And so we've got to do that. And I certainly hope that you'll uh, join us back after the break. And uh, we sure are thankful that you're listening. All right, we continue listening to the salvation testimony as well as just Christian experience of Brother Ben Smoker. Brother Ben is a faithful member of Temple Baptist Church, uh, teaches our ambassadors class, uh, that is the um, uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade uh, boys and girls at Temple Baptist and he's also an evangelist, does a lot of preaching throughout the country. uh, whenever needed and he's even uh, filled in with some churches here locally and uh, we appreciate his ministry uh, brother ben uh, i have been enjoying hearing what god has done in your life what he's doing in your life so i'm going to turn things back over to you for this last segment we got about uh, i don't know 11 or 12 minutes left so uh, share with us the rest of the things that uh, time will permit us for okay
1: good deal um, i'm going to uh, speak at this time on on making investments in the lives of in the lives of young people uh during one of the breaks uh we'd um we'd been discussing that um my life story is not just the story of one missionary preacher that uh, invested in my life um uh, i can to a certain extent i could go that first one his name was uh, richard van dyne uh, and then there was a guy called Randy Perkins, who's still faithfully serving in Australia. He's had leukemia for 20 years, but still faithfully serving as a, as a missionary there. Uh, there was a guy called Marvin Donnell. Um, there was a, a, a Dr. Richard Wright, who lives in um, Pilot Mountain, Tennessee today. Very old man now, but still faithfully serving the Lord in uh, Tennessee. Uh, then another missionary by the name of John Wheat. And that's six of them that come to my mind straight away there. Uh, But not just not just preachers. Uh, People need to make investments in in young people. Mm -hmm. Parents need to be willing to make investments uh, in their own children. Um, And um, the first thing I'll say on on investing in young people, when I was in the middle of grade five, uh, I was in the public school system uh, in Australia. um, And the public school system is a very, quote unquote, secular humanistic uh, mindset uh, of teaching young people, they teach things that are, go against the teachings of the Bible. Uh, they very strongly teach the um, the the doctrine, uh, as I would call it, of uh, human evolution, uh, big bang theory, and all of those things. And uh, you know, the Bible teaching special creation by uh, the spoken word of God and. Uh, not just things like that, but there was a lot of other things going on, the moral influence in the public school system. And by the middle of grade five, my parents said, Enough is enough. They pulled me out of that school system and they put me into a very small, private Christian school. Uh, this Christian school used a curriculum that's uh, very, probably, m- there may be listeners out there this morning who are familiar with the ACE um, Christian mm. School curriculum. And that was. My wife
0: grew up in that curriculum.
1: Yep. Uh, It's, they have good material, really good material, it's a good system and so my parents made that investment. Now the reason why that's an investment, why I say that's an investment is uh, they had to pay for it themselves on top of their taxes, it's not free schooling like the public school system is Uh, but they paid for it, they made an investment with a huge risk and the reason why was this, the small Christian school that they sent me to it was unregistered with the government, it was unaffiliated with the government um, it was very, very well known to, the, to the, both the state government that we lived in and also to the federal government of Australia. Um, and the government had sued the church, and the government had sued the school. Um, and from the time I was in grade 5 to, all the way through to the time I graduated in grade 12, the next seven years uh, was just one legal battle after another. that The church had, the school had... And also the the individual parents, uh, the parents were dragged into these uh, into this mess uh, by the government. And my parents stood firm uh, in their commitment. and They were like, "No, we believe so strongly in in our right to to freedom of worship and freedom of education of our children that we're willing to take this battle on ourselves, take on the expense, the burden, the lawyers, uh, and also, of course, the huge risks associated with." Um, action like that. And so that was an investment that my parents were willing to make uh, in, in ensuring that I got not just a good education, but a good uh, moral framework mm-hmm. and spiritual upbringing. Yeah. And so um, huge thing. Uh, and I'm very thankful for it. Uh, I'm going to mention a few a few names of people that mean nothing to anyone living in Statesville, North Carolina, but they, you know, the influence they had on me uh, meant the world to me. Uh, a guy by the name of Graham Cochran, Graham Cochran was my Iwana leader as a little kid growing up. He was my Sunday school teacher at many stages in my life. Our church had a soccer team. Uh, He was was the coach of the soccer team. He was the captain of our soccer team. uh, And he was my youth group minister. Um, He made huge investments in me uh, personally. uh, And I'll be forever thankful for it. Uh, Graham is still serving the Lord faithfully today. He runs a Christian camp uh, on the outskirts of Sydney uh, in Australia. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, Graham's brother, Steve, um, Steve Cochran, uh, was the principal of the Christian school that I was just talking about. The, so, you know, the principal, I mean, you talk about a guy in the crosshairs. This is a guy who he runs the school that the government is, is out to get. And uh, he was... If you've never had a naturally gifted teacher in your life, you wouldn't know what it was. But if you've ever had a truly naturally gifted teacher, uh, you would know it. And, and Steve Cochran was that. Um, he was my teacher at school, but he was also like a friend to me, which is really unusual. You know, he's a 30-plus-year-old guy, and I'm a 16-year-old teenage kid, and he was a, a friend to me. And um, to be honest, he laid the foundation for a lot of the uh, success that, that I had in life. I was, to a certain extent, I was his star uh, pupil and student at school. I know what his dreams and ambitions were for me. Um, He wanted me to go overseas. He wanted me to go to a a big college here in the United States, Um, you know, Harvard or Princeton or Yale or one of the big ones. And uh, I went and sat the exams and scored sufficiently highly that I would have. And when I didn't go on and chase those ambitions, I'm sure he felt a little disappointed. But uh, I've met up with him in recent years and he's not at all disappointed with the... Uh, with the results that the, that the mm. Lord has, has had in my life through the investment that he made. Uh, a missionary uh, by the name of John Wheat, he was a missionary from Missouri to Australia for over 20 years. He was, uh, he was my pastor. He was my Bible college teacher. Uh, he was my mentor uh, in all my life. I've never known a more intense, uh, intensely serious Christian than what John Wheat was. Uh, he lived as if everything in the Bible was real. Uh, that's what I would say about him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just a preacher that was a preacher on Sunday and then did something else the rest of the week. Uh, he was a seven-day-a-week Christian, uh, and the investments that he made, I'll be forever thankful for him. So, you know, between between my parents, my uh, Graham, my, who was a Sunday school teacher and youth worker and soccer coach even, Steve, who was my Christian school teacher, John Wheat, who was my preacher, but most importantly, my parents never underestimate the value of investing in youth. I, I mentioned that, um, I said that Graham Cochran, I said he's now, a, uh, he's now runs a Christian camp in Australia. And this is the last thing I wanna say before, handing over to, to you to, to finish out. Um, in the late 1980s, in the early 1990s in Australia, there was a small period of time where instead of fighting against each other the like-minded churches started cooperating and they started working together and they would accept the little differences that different churches had and they, would, they were willing to overlook with grace not without compromising what they believed but with grace they were able to overlook the differences and, and work together and there was a time where uh, in probably one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-eight, one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-nine, I went to some special meetings at that campground where Graham Cochran is now the camp director. He wasn't the camp the, he wasn't the campground director there at the time that came much later. But at that campground, I still remember uh, a night where there was it was a youth it was a combined youth meeting from multiple churches many, many hundreds of young people there in the church that night many, many hundreds of youth workers there in in the church that night it was sort of an open air, it was an open sided building it had a roof but no sides on it which was good because there literally wasn't room in the building to fit everyone in there Uh, and the presence of the Lord was so real uh, there that night I still remember singing, one of the hymns that we were singing was um, How Great Thou Art and you know the, the spirit spirit of the Lord, the presence there was so strong, the emotional feeling there was so strong. It was hard to sing because of the knot in your throat because of it. Um, and in Ezra chapter 9 verse 8, and there's a verse there that, uh, where Ezra prayed and he said, And uh, give us a little reviving in our bondage. Amen. And that to me, what, what I saw and experienced there for a couple of years, in the late 80s and early 90s. I've spent the rest of my life, and intend to continue to spend the rest of my life, trying to get Christians back to that point, so the next generation can see that. Um, That's what we desperately need. I got kids in bed this morning. I got a 17 year old, a 14 year old, a 10 year old, and a little four year old in bed. And I want all of my kids and all others around this region that can hear this radio broadcast today. We need to see a little reviving in our bondage.
0: Amen, brother. I, I could not agree with you more. And I share that burden, that desire. We need a move of God. You know, Jesus uh, met a maniac man there in Gadara totally changed his life. I mean, he was messed up beyond all recognition, but Jesus passed by, changed his life, and this is what he said. He said, "I want you to go and go home and tell your friends how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee." The power of a testimony. Jesus understood it. Appreciate mm-hmm. you sharing yep. your testimony, brother Ben. Your heart, your burden, your passion. God Folks, we need God, and we want to encourage you to seek Him with all of your heart. God bless you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us at Salt and Light. It is our desire that you experience the joy of following Jesus Christ. He loves you, and He died on the cross for your sins. He will give you hope, peace, and eternal life if you will repent of your sins and trust Him as your Savior. You may see yourself as a good person, but you will never be good enough to deserve heaven. You may see yourself as bad, but you can never be too bad for Jesus to forgive you. You can call upon Him to save you this very moment. If you are a born-again Christian, we want to encourage you to obey Christ's command and be salt and light to those around you. We encourage you to find a Bible-believing church that does not compromise or water down the Bible. Get involved serving the Lord. If you have a Bible question or a particular issue you would like us to discuss on Salt and Light, visit our website at templebaptistnc.com. Click on the Salt and Light link. Once again, that's templebaptistnc.com. May the Lord bless you. We hope you'll join us again next week.